wherever man lives, he is destined to work. And here we are, working our jobs for hearing voices, the best of public radio on NPR, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which pays us for our job. I'm Ann Hepperman. And I'm Kara Oler. And today we're playing Sounds of the Daily Grind, stories about the jobs we love and the ones that crush our souls, like those dreary nine-to-five ones that the Ramones sing about in their song, No Place for Me. totally going to lose our jobs. How did we even get hired in the first place? We had to suffer the humiliation of the job interview. Why do um, you want a job here with us? I'd like to apply for a job. Yes, the job you have available. My manner is most saleable, and I hope you'll find me suitable for 5.15 an hour. I really have the skills, you see. I've been to university, and though I studied history, I found my heart to truly be in men's ties and socks, glass figurines, the discount shoe industry. What makes me think I'd be good for this job? Well, I love working with people. And I love riding the subway an hour and a half each way. Let's see, add those hours to my day, and I'll be making a whopping three seventy-five an hour. No, sir, I, I, I do want the job. Can't you tell by my suit? No, actually, I don't own a dress. I don't feel comfortable, I confess. But hell, for 5.15 an hour, I'll endeavor to wear some colors other than black. <laughs> I um, enjoy working with the public, and I'm good with money. Oh, yes, you're right. All us girls are good with money. Yes, that's charming. Yes, how funny. I like a good work atmosphere where the boss says whatever he wants and the rest of us just listen. I'm a very fast learner, and I promise that if you give me this job, I'll be the perfect subhuman and never let my contempt shine in my worshipping eyes. I love working with people, and let's see, what else was I going to tell you? No, I don't expect vacation pay, and yes, I'm available every day, and though I don't like the evil way you're looking at me, I've got rent to pay. Sorry. And yes, I can start on Saturday. That was Marin Cadell's tone poem, Job Application. Back in the 1950s and 60s, producer Tony Schwartz hopped into taxis all across New York City and got cabbies to confess all sorts of things, like what they used to do before their job behind the wheel. There are 13,000 taxi cabs in New York City, most of them company-owned, and some of them private. In a night and day shift, that adds up to 26,000 cabbies, with 12,000 more to take care of the other hours that give around-the-clock service to the citizens and visitors of New York. And every one of those 38,000 drivers has a story, beginning with the time years ago when he started hacking as a temporary job. The only other trade I knew I got out of because my feet bothered me. I was a waiter. So in order to get off my feet, I took a job sitting down. <laughs> it was just something that I had to do or do nothing. And when I got into it, so as the years went by, that was it. I lost. I had, uh, I couldn't get no other job. And that was, uh, not that this was any better. I used to sell for a house, and the house folded up, and then I got married, and then I started to raise a family, so I couldn't get uh, locate no other job, and as the years went by, I was getting older, and that was it. I often wonder why the fellas, the new fellas, come in to drive a cab today, when, or even a few years back, when their opportunities were far more greater than what the opportunity that, that, that I had, because I couldn't get a job no how. Anything cut, though, there's no doubt. Everything I earn is commission. 
the more you earn, the more commission you make. It becomes a competitive business. You're out there cutthroat. So you get to the point where you don't care how you go about it. There's no ethics, there's no morals. 30 years, 31 years. I'm telling you, 31 years. Now figure it out. I never did anything, else, anything in my life. From the day I was 21 years old, I'm 52 tonight. I'll be 21 years old to get a hack license. I got my hack license when I was 21. Still doing to my sorrow, not that I'm bragging about it, just to my sorrows. Because I had the opportunity to become a cop in New York City, I would have been a retired cop today. I could have been doing this now, making a little side money with a pension. These are government figures, son, that prove how hard it is to succeed in life. It says if you ask a hundred average young men 25 years old, everyone thinks he's going to be a success someday. But look what happens to them by the time they're 65, 36 of them. It says here, we'll be dead. Government Figures by Steve Fisk. And we started out with New York City taxi drivers confessing on a microphone to Tony Schwartz. Now, there are temporary jobs that turn into real ones. And sometimes there are those jobs where a person realizes they can make money because there just isn't anyone else to do it. Or anyone who wants to do it. We had a friend of ours who was hired by a funeral home to pick up the bodies of people who had died. He had a really small car. And the funeral homeowner paid him like $500 a body. I'm not sure it was worth the money. Laura Quarrell talked to a man who ended up with a job in a similar field. Okay. Let's see. Testing. Okay, so just say where, where, say we're standing in the whatever room and, you know, something like that. We're standing in, um, Warehouse 2, we have two warehouses here, and this is the second warehouse. So, just can you um, just tell me the story of how you and your partner, um, and could you actually not hold, Hold. yeah, because I can hear it, sorry. Um. And what's your turnover rate like? Um, actually, we have a high turnover rate. We're really lucky if we keep an employee for 10 months to a year. We get a lot of people who call us. I mean, call us, email us, looking for jobs, wanting to do this type of work. And when we first train people, my, my first interview with them is actually to talk them out of even considering this job. If they waver at all, we know for sure that this isn't what what they want and this isn't what they're looking for. The hardest part of the job, as I had mentioned earlier, dealing with the families, but it's also very hard on their families too, not knowing when a job was going to come in but making plans. Christmas dinner, they're sitting down and their phone rings and... Okay, so can you can you start by saying um, something like, hi, my name is... Tim and your full name, and I'm the owner of. Okay. Hi, my name is Tim Reifstack. I'm co-owner of Aftermath Incorporated. I had just graduated college and was living in an apartment. My business partner now, um, we've been friends since we were in second grade. He came over. We actually had plans of going golf that morning. And across the street from where I lived was a subdivision. 
there's some other neighbors that were standing out there just talking and so forth. We went outside, we walked across the street, and we just had you know, asked, what, what happened? And with the discussion, they had said that the kid uh, committed suicide. An officer approached all of us and said, asked us, do we know of any company that would perform this type of cleanup? We were like, nope. So about 15 more minutes went by. He's still there talking to us and so forth. And me and my business partner were just like, well, if we could, you know, we would help the family if they needed it. And he's like, great. And we were in the house no longer than probably one minute, and he was knocking on the door, saying, if you could help out the family, that'd be great. So that's how it all started. For the most part, a majority of our jobs are unattended deaths, and, and that is when someone uh, passes away in their home is, and is undiscovered for a period of time that we've had the longest go out to two and a half years. So they were in their home for two and a half years. Do you know the circumstances of that one? Yes, it's a, it was a crazy job. So under $30, started out in the medical field. Mm-hmm. And we're going to go to the funds very quickly because we're almost out of time. Okay. The daughter of the deceased actually lived there in the home with him for the two and a half years. What she was doing was collecting his social security checks. You could smell the death from the street. As you walk through this house, you actually were walking through a maze of boxes from the QVC channel, because that's all she did. Is she was watched the QVC channel all day long and just bought stuff. I honestly feel it. I can't tell you how happy I am to have purchased this item. And when you looked up at the ceiling, it was nothing but air fresheners dangling from the ceiling, such as in that movie Seven, when you walked in that bedroom. It was very similar to that include working out, why aren't you working out your face? If your New Year's resolutions are looking younger, why aren't you working out your face? If your New Year's resolutions are just not looking older, why aren't you working out your face? Roughly half of our jobs are unattended deaths, and about 25% are suicides. And then from there, it kind of breaks out from murders, accidents, home invasions, um, and just um, various other things. I mean, we've done them where women have given birth in homes. Um, One of the questions we usually get when people find out what we do is, oh, do you guys have more suicides around Christmas? And actually, no, we have no more suicides around Christmas than we do in the dead of summer. There's no rhyme or reason for when people kill themselves or when various situations happen. Um, The only thing that we know for sure is that in the summertime, Just due to the heat and humidity, a body that lays there for a day or two is much more worse than a body that lays in a house for a day or two in the wintertime. Do you want to have a word like... Um, Can you just tell me maybe a story of one of the more, like, unusual um, scenes that you encountered in, you know, since you started the company? Yeah, well, the the scene that we usually talk about is a job that took place in Sherrillville, Indiana. There was a person who, it was his best friend. They had been friends for 20 plus years. He and his wife had separated, and they were going through um, the first stages of a divorce. Well, what ended up happening was his best friend ended up staying with his wife, soon soon to be ex-wife, and started sleeping with her and moved into the place with her and so forth. So at work, he was constantly getting harassed by the other workers. And at one point, he just broke. He burnt his trailer down. He sent flowers to her work with a condolence of her death and went over to her house roughly 6 o'clock in the morning and um, scaled up one um, condo of this three-story condo unit. He scaled up the outside of it to the porch of one, went in, um, asked the families where she was staying at and so forth. They knew nothing of her, didn't know her or anything. Here he's standing there, he's got 
a shotgun on his shoulders. He's got an AR-15 in his hand. He's in full combat outfit. So he goes out the door, goes up to the second floor, knocks on the door where a woman answers the door and she's holding an infant and asks for her name. She's like, no, I think it, it might be across the, across the hallway and proceeds to tell her, go into your bathtub, lay down, and don't lift your head up because World War III is going to start. And this lady said she no longer took four steps and she heard pop, 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 pop. And that's him shooting bullet holes through the door. Proceeds to kick the door open. His best friend and her were there. They had thought that this was going to come to an end and was prepared for this because he kept his handgun right there by his bed. He jumped up, grabbed the handgun, proceeded down a hallway, got out to an opening as he was just coming through the door into the living room, um, he took two shots off, hit um, the guy in the chest. As he was falling backward, his AR-15 shot and took about probably six or seven bullets, hitting him, knocking him to the ground. Well, for the next 15 minutes, he just antagonized his best friend on the ground as he was in pain and so forth. He proceeded to walk around and completely shot his arms and his legs off. Uh, Down to the point where he lit his privates on fire and then shot his his head off. Completely just just walked around and just shooting the AR-15. We were out in our hometown in Sterling, Illinois at one of our best friend's brother's funerals. We were sitting there. We had sent our supervisor and two technicians down there. As we were sitting there and they knew we were going to a funeral, they responded to this job first. And it was one where they called and called and we just kept hanging our phone up and we were just looking at each other, just grinding our teeth, going, what could they be calling about? They know we're in this funeral. So finally we were like, something's got to be wrong. So we get up and we call and the supervisor's like, I don't know what to do. You guys got to get here. This is the worst scene I've ever walked into. I don't even know where to start. And I can still picture it as I walked through this door. You get up there and this door is closed and you can see the bullet holes through it. And you just push the door open and when you first step in it's as though someone had taken a body and stuffed it into a wood chipper and just sprayed it all over this room and there wasn't one square inch of that room that didn't have blood or tissue on it and how do you where do you start like (laughs) um You just got to pick pick something and start at that point. In this situation, we started by removing large chunks of the body that the coroner didn't take with them. For an instance, I mean, his, his intestines were dangling all over a, a stereo equipment. So we went in and we picked up all of that stuff first, removed bad areas of carpet and so forth. And then from there proceeded with the walls, wiping all the loose debris off of the walls because all the walls were going to come down anyways. And um, kind of just proceeded through the unit in that way. Um, we've got Tyvek suits on, gloves, a full face respirator. We've got booties that go over our Tyvek suits. So we're completely protected. Over time, you get desensitized with the visual aspect of the job, seeing the bodily fluids and so forth. The part that you really don't ever get over is the family, dealing with the family. Having family members ask you to bring back their loved ones. And you're in a room doing a suicide or an unattended death cleanup, and just one room over you can hear the family going through their grief, just weeping at the the top of their lungs. That's the hardest part of this job to deal with. I'm sure people have asked this, but how, I mean, it just seems like how do you... How do you do it? Like, it just, you just seem like really calm. Like, it just doesn't seem like something. Well, I've been doing it for roughly 11 years. And 
When we first started the company, the one thing that me and Chris agreed on was that if we're going to do this, it's there. we're there to help families. And that's what we, we know is our end job, is that we're actually the first step in this family's grieving process. We're getting them back to some normalcy back into their life so that they can get back into their home or businesses. They can start back their business back up. You just heard an excerpt from The Aftermath with reporter Laura Quirrell, produced by Nick Vanderkoek. That whole story is on the Love and Radio podcast at alt.npr.org. We'll clock out this half of the hour with Silla Black's Work is a Four-Letter Word. There are girls that some men will slay for to provide the things that they pray for. Why do you think work is a four-letter word? Loving you is driving me crazy People say that you were born lazy Cause you think that work is a fall at your word Don't waste your life There is so much I know you can do Let me see That work is a fall at your work I don't want a house that's a show place I just feel that we're getting no place While you say that work is a fall at your work Coming up, we grab a wetsuit and head to the trading floor as we continue to work on hearing voices. Hey, are we getting paid by the hour here? I don't know. Should we punch out? Nah, let's charge them for this minute. That work is a four-letter word. Four-letter word. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. And the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back. We're here slaving away for those taskmasters at Hearing Voices. I'm Kara Oler. And I'm Ann Hepperman. And this week, our job is to report on the 9 to 5, scenes from the working week. You know, some jobs don't really seem like work at all. Like this guy, who probably has the best job on the golf course. Good evening, folks out there in Radio Land. My name is Tiger Woods. This 217-yard hole, I'm hitting a nine-iron. <laughs> I'm Paul Niber. I, I'm a scuba diver. I contract with golf courses. Get up there. Get up there. 
get a lot of strange reactions. Uh, cause, you, know, you don't expect to see a scuba diver on a golf course. Oh my God. I used to teach school. I, I taught fourth grade uh, in elementary school for 25 years, retired last year. This is, was up to that point a pretty much a part-time job and now made it a full-time business. You're diving through a lot of mud and algae and uh, broken glass uh, sticks, and it's really, really, it, it is a job. It, it, it is work. We, what we call process the balls, we'll wash them up and sort out different grades and then try to find a market for, for the balls. And that's the hard part of trying to find a good market so we can make a decent living off of the, uh, off the business. Stay dry, stay dry. Wet, wet. Well, we find a lot of golf clubs. I would say we find an average of, uh, what, one a day? Yeah, it was a whole, a whole set of uh, Titleist clubs that were broken in half. Actually, every one of them were broken in half and thrown in. Oh! Oh, we've, uh, we've really riled some, uh, some golfers up. They, they thought that we were a big turtle or, or a large fish. They had no idea what uh, was down there. They were just amazed as they, they saw our shadow or figure go by. Like I said, it's uh, you know to, to be walking across the fairway with with a tank on your back. It's uh, it's got to look strange. The bullfighter. That's what I wanted to be. Yeah. All my life. I have dreamed of fighting the bull. From earliest childhood, I dreamed of fighting the bull. At first, I would fight the very small bull. Later on, I would fight the bigger bull. Then I went into the arena where the biggest bull of all, and I was afraid I couldn't fight the biggest bull because I know the biggest bull. Is inside me. <laughs> There's too much bull. That was Ken Nordine's Bullfighter from his spoken word album A Transparent Mask. Before that, we heard a portrait of a golf ball scuba diver, Paul Nyber by producer Jeff Rice, along with the music of Leroy Anderson. You're listening to Hearing Voices, and today's show is all about what we do for a living. And in places like New York, you can do just about anything. Producer Joe Richman of Radio Diaries talked to a woman who has perhaps one of the most appreciated jobs in all of New York City, and he doesn't even need her services. I'm Selma Koch, going to be 95. Originally, the story opened in 1888. It was my father-in-law's business. You know, sometimes old ladies creep in with their, with their nurses and their wheelchairs and their walkers, like me, and they come in and they say, you know, you sold me my trousseau. So what, 70 years ago? I keep saying, gee, I don't look like that. Of course I do, but I say, Really, they got terribly old, but I'm fine. Hello, town shop. Yes, we do. You want nursing bras, don't you? Yeah, fine. We can fit you for that. You come in, we'll take care of you. All right. We carry tremendous stuff. Thousands of bras. Different numbers, different colors. A customer can come in and say, I'll take six, I'll take eight. We have them. Because there's depth to our stone. Miss K. What? Three, five, six, one. Can I order that in a 34D? They're not, not making it in 34. These boxes, look, 
are absolutely jammed full. These are nothing but panties, bikinis, thongs, briefs. Thongs are very big now. I don't know why. But we sold the first underwire bra. In those days, the undergarments were stiff and hard and boned and zipped and even hooked. But the thing that's made this bra business so fantastic is that bosoms have gotten so big. When we started, cups were A, B, and C. Now, some of the most successful Brazilian manufacturers are making E, F, G, and H. And they are big. You can almost live in it. It looks like a big tent, doesn't it? And they're young things. I mean, they're not just stiff old lady bronze. Champion, 141. Did they make that in 42C? You can try to get it for her. Hello. Can we help you find something? We don't let people roam around the store. The minute a customer comes in, she's approached. You can walk from end to end on a floor in Lord & Taylor and not see a person. Can you think of a bra for me that's very low back? Uh, what do you wear, 34 B? Right. Let me look, huh? Okay. Let's see. There's nothing more, I think, frustrating than to keep on trying things and they don't fit and they don't fit and they don't fit. And you begin to think something's matter with you. I'm going to make this a little bit tighter, all right? Yeah. I never wore one of these. Well, they're awfully good. Oh, are they? Look. How does the bra feel? So that's a low one? Low back? Yeah, but how are we doing about the cup? Does this get straps? I'll put straps on for you. You know, which might make you feel good. And I'll put them here. Bras are my, really my specialty. I never had to try six brassiers on a customer. Two was plenty. I mean, I knew in a minute what was right, finish, buy it out. Have a great time. Oh, and this is what you call nuisance work, you know? Call them up, make a complaint. Unk, unk, unk. Yeah, this is Selma Kotsa Town Shop. I'm fine, I'm a little bothered. Uh, I ordered things in sets. I got the bra and not the pants. I got the pants and not the bra. In 9433, I got the gray and not the pink. In 9461, I got the pink, but not the gray. Well, 10 days isn't so terrible. All right, thank you. Nobody said the retail business was going to be easy. couple came in a couple of years ago, very well-dressed, and there were two robes. I said, let me shorten the sleeves for you. I said, you don't want to get them wet when you make the coffee. And she said, I never made the coffee. My husband has always given me my breakfast in bed. So when he came to give me his credit card, I said, I've looked for you all my life. I said, if she doesn't survive, will you call me? I love a guy who gave me my breakfast in bed. Well, she did die, but he never called Hello, town job. Yes. Tell me, you're putting them in a washing machine? Tell the truth. Are you? That's what's doing it. You don't put the baby in a washing machine, do you? But if you come by in a cab, just drop it off. Yeah, and we'll get you back fast. Okay, fine. People respond to people who are nice. People who come in with complaints and come in with hostility and fire the thing down. What are you carrying on about? It's a brassiere. You know, I mean, what's, what are you wasting emotion on a brassiere for? Okay. No problem to fit you for a bra. Well, is this one going to hide a lot of more stuff? Well, you don't have stuff. I don't have stuff. I really don't think... think I'd be more comfortable yeah. in that. I don't think you need the other. Honesty is important in selling. 
And if I think it's terrible, I say it's awful. Take it off. You can do better than that. Listen, it's the same with a doctor. You give them advice. Yeah, now look in the mirror. And also, this has a little push. It gives you a nice uplift. Yeah, that looks Isn't that better? Yeah, much better. Fitting is important and pleasing the customer is important. But your approach to the customer is the most important thing, I think. Don't jump. Yes. Right, and you, you know what I say, how many miles can you drive a car? Well, I've had a lot of miles, too. <laughs> so if things are wearing out, they're wearing out. Right. Okay, dear. The girl started to get undressed in the cab. Picked up on 121st Street and 3rd Avenue. She's going to 42nd Street and 3rd Avenue. So she gets in the cab with this box, you know. That time I saw it about four years ago. I was driving one of those big cabs. And I'm going down 3rd Avenue, you know. I mean, I looked to the mirror to see if anybody was behind me. Here's this girl in Brazil. So, you know, so I looked, I, I, I looked back and I snapped down my brake. I said, hey, what are you doing? She said, gee, I'm late for my job. I have to get dressed, you know. I says, girl, you can't get dressed in this cab. I said, you better put your things on again. She said, well, I'm almost dressed already, you know. <clears throat> so then she says, will you come back here and zip up my, my, my skirt up? I said, not me, girl. Nothing doing. Uh, you want to call that interesting, but I was really, you know, I was afraid to, the cop would stop me and wonder what the hell's going on there. Girls, oh, you know, get back there, and then maybe she stop hollering blue murder, and maybe she hasn't got the money for the fare, and then she'll start saying that you gotta do something, you know? Yeah. I said, not me, girl. I ain't getting out of the front seat. Sunday, I'd get a kid from Idlewild Airport to White Plains, a college girl. So she's telling me everything that's happening in Dallas, Texas. You know, different things like that. And every once in a while, when you meet a wise one, you least 75 cents on the clock and she'll say yeah, do you want a dollar or do you want to come upstairs you know things like that she was no doubt a lady you know what i mean she lived in a nice neighborhood and she invited me upstairs and then believe it or not her boyfriend came in is that a predicament is that embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> so you went <laughs> but you went but he paid me to go that's the funniest part of it yeah. <laughs> He's here. Take this and get out of here. <laughs> what do you think, Kara? Do you believe that cab driver? Uh, I was with him until the part where the boyfriend paid him to leave. I'm not sure I buy it. Well, New York City cab drivers do like to spin some tales while the meter's running. And Tony Schwartz was there to record them back in the 1950s and 60s. He released an LP called The New York City Cab Driver. And before we hopped into the cab, we heard from New York bra saleswoman Selma Koch talking to Joe Richman from his series, New York Works, co-produced with Emily Botine, with help from Ben Shapiro. Now let's head down to Wall Street. It's where Ben Rubin talked to some people whose job it is to get up every morning, yell, and sometimes wring each other's necks. They're the swirling mass of people who stand on the trading room floor of the New York Mercantile Exchange. Silver. Sometimes I say to people, didn't you hear me bidding? And I know if they say, I didn't hear you, I know they're not telling me the truth. Because people always hear my voice. It's, it's unique, and it's a strong voice, too. 
if I'm selling Octobers, you know, you don't say, you, you say Ock, and you don't say the full handle, you'll say like Ock at 10. So I just yell out, Ock at 10! Ock 70 bit! Right, right, 25! So 25, Ock 75 bit at 78. You're not listening to one person at a time. You're hearing everybody speak at the same time. It's like going to a symphony and hearing every piece of the orchestra, but yet hearing the music at the same time. And in, and in the midst of that, you may observe, for instance, a broker that you've traded with for years. You know what his face looks like when he's laughing. You know what his face looks like when he's upset about something at home. And suddenly he's got a nervous look. You can tell when somebody's bluffing, when somebody's not bluffing. And this is, these are all skills that are you know, learned over time. It's really an internal gut feeling. And as far as just seeing the expression on somebody's face, the way that somebody's breathing, the way that somebody's leaning on someone else. Uh, I always knew when the guy behind me had a real order, because when he had a Big, big order. He used to take my shoulder and shove it to the ground trying to hold himself up. These two men. These two men two. These two men two. So 50, these are two. Octis at 10. Octis. Novi. Novi out there. Novi out there. Novi two men. These two men. Novi and a half. Novi, buy him and a half. Novi and two. Novi, buy him and a half. Novi out there. 20, Novi and two. 20 for four. 20 for four. Orange juice, silver, up. Orange juice, cotton, up. Gasoline, natural gas, up. Crude oil, natural gas, up. Well, I've been in the ring 32 years. How do I sound? You know, uh, the open outcry system, which is probably with, with me, some people may look as an integrated system, it's probably the most sophisticated, timely system uh, that's in existence today. If you believe in, if you believe in a marketplace, this is as pure a form as it gets. If everybody's buying, it's going to be tougher to buy, right? Simple as that. Just because you want to sell it at $29.55 and you're offering $29.55, the guy next to you could be selling it, the guy in front of you could be selling it, the guy behind you could be selling it, and you might not have sold anything. Volatility makes money. War creates turmoil. Turmoil creates opportunity. I'm not suggesting that people want terrible outcomes, but I am suggesting that a lot of people depend on them. It's all 50. The tempers flare. There's a lot of money flying around moment to moment, you know, and um, there's a classic story. Actually, it's about my father. And there was a time in Silver when uh, he got into an argument with somebody and he had their neck down against the rail. And a guy looked at him and he says, Marty, even though that you know, you're chairman of the floor committee, I'm going to have to fine you 500 bucks for this. And so he looks at the guy, he, puts, he, he keeps one hand on the guy's neck, takes the other hand in his pocket, throws down 1000 bucks, and says, double it because I'm going to finish him off. You know, two minutes later, they're out having a cup of coffee together. Aluminum up. Orange juice up. Gold up. There were members in good standing that had been on the trading floor the day before September 11th that we would never see again. And I think people were very, very aware of their absence. In fact, the first trading day, for at least the first trading day, 
some of their positions in the pit were sort of silhouetted by their the outline of their footprints and people wouldn't step into those spots. That was sound designer Ben Rubin's piece, Open Outcry, which was commissioned after 9-11 to commemorate the reopening of the Winter Garden, a huge atrium space in the World Financial Center. You're listening to Hearing Voices, and today we're live from the 9 to 5 with Scenes from the Working Week. A few years ago, Anne and I went to Chicago to try and find people who made money in the underground economy. And one guy we met was John, Procardia. who sold legal pharmaceutical drugs on the streets. Asthma pumps. All kinds of medication. Donovan. People call me the medicine man. Rhino Court. Especially a lot of older clients of mine. Abuterols. They call me the medicine man. He can get what you, what you need. Lipitor. Which you've been taking. Insulin medication. Zoloft. Mm, hello, my name is John. Medicor. I'm on the south side of Chicago. Cogent. My hustle is medication, napersons, and I try Dilantin. to give a legitimate service to people that already need certain medications. Celebrate. I just try to keep getting their medication for them a little less expensively than Walgreens. One day I went, had to go and see the doctor, and I'm sitting in there and I'm looking and listening to all these people in the, in the doctor's office, man, complain about how they're not able to pay for it. And all at the same time I'm listening to them, I'm thinking about a couple of guys that I grew up and went to school with that's pharmacists now. It just hit me. This is a way to make money. When I go out this, to the house this morning, I'm going to see my pharmacist. Somewhere in the conversation, I'm going to tell him what I need. And he's going to quote a price to me, like 200 celebrates, for example. Cost me 50 bucks. I break them down and sell 30 celebrates for 25 bucks. I'm going to triple my money somewhere in there. Okay, here we come. We're coming up to Lorraine's house. We already did talk yesterday about the price of um, Dilantin and a peanut barber tall. Lorraine, hey, how you doing? How you doing, John? Monthly income off of my hustle. Uh, I got your medication for you. I could, on average, make... You got everything I asked for? Yes, ma'am. $1,500. Okay. What are we talking about? The same price we talked about the other day, $40. No problem. It's a sale. I got to sell them Thanks. on I'm a good person. Okay. I'll call you this week or next week well, sometime. We get ready for tomorrow. I'll do that. Up. Thank you. All right. All right. You have, have a good one. All right. I'm not trying to get you something to misuse you or abuse you. I'm getting exactly what you're going into Walgreens buying. New clients find mostly about me through people I'm already dealing with because it's not costing them as much for their medication that they need. So, you know, my name jumps around, man, <laughs> all around town. I just hope it don't fall in the wrong hands. <laughs> the service that I'm doing. Yeah, I guess you could look at it as I'm doing wrong, but I feel like I'm helping people along with helping myself, you know, so I don't consider that really being a bad guy. That was John. He was part of our longer documentary, Chicago Hustles, for WBEZ's Chicago Matter series. Executive producer Julia McAvoy, production assistant Greg Scott. To have to go to work day after day to do something you don't like must be terrible. I was fortunate. I always had work I liked. And it was very difficult for me to retire. I retired at age 57, but I didn't have to. I very seldom had enough time to spend with my wife. One day I was sitting at the table, it was a Sunday, and I looked at the clock, it was 6 o'clock. I was planning the coming week. I looked over at my wife and she was reading the newspaper. And I said to my wife, there's got to be more to life than work. I liked my job, but it was about time I got to know my wife a little better. I felt strongly about that, and it was very, well, I'd say it was a fortunate decision. I won't say it was a smart decision, it was fortunate, because I had eight good years with her while she was in real good health. We saw the world together. I got joy just watching her be happy. That was David Greenberger with Fortunate Decision, based on a conversation he had with Reinhardt Buck Buckley. The music is by Bangalore. Hey, Kara. Yeah? Let's catch the last cab out of this show. 
I don't know how you feel towards Joe. Like, I just hate my work. I hate it. What am I going to do? I got to do it to make a living. When I make, I'm satisfied. I'm not going to jump out of the building. I make enough for my needs. That's all. What I would like, that's out of my reach. A little business of my own where I could work for myself instead of working for someone else. But it is definitely out of my reach and I don't give it a second thought. You want to be a taxi driver forever? Is that the way you want to die? <laughs> well, I guess if that's the way it has to be, I guess that's the way it'll have to be. <laughs> Hey, guess what? What? Our job is done. Sweet. Let's get out of here. One last thing, though. What? The credits. Ah, okay. Thanks for listening to the 9 to 5, Scenes from the Working Week on Hearing Voices. I'm Ann Hepperman. And I'm Kara Oler. We produce this show. David Greenberger's work is at duplexplanet.com. Ben Rubin's site is earstudio.com. Also check out radiodiaries.org and tonyschwartz.com. And there are links to all of the producers you heard in this hour at hearingvoices.com. We'll leave you with a little work incentive here. Depeche Mode song, Work Hard. Why are we still working? I don't know. Let's get out of here. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is hearingvoices.com. <laughs>